morning. All right, a couple things before we get going. Um, one, those of you that weren't here last week, we talked a lot about the building and the fact that we closed on the building last week, and so we now own a building on 7th and Wallace. Um, and before, before you get too happy, um, we will not see that building on Sunday mornings for a long time, uh, as we're going to be in the process of sort of raising the funds to add the auditorium space to that building uh, over the next year. And so if you would like to contribute to that, you'll hear us continue to talk about the, the building and how to do so over the coming weeks, but you can go to our website on the give page and there's actually, uh, you, you're able to select whether or not you wanna give to the general fund or to the building fund. And so um, we just really appreciate the people that have given already and the fact that you're willing to give of your own finances to contribute to this. So we thank you guys so much. Second thing, uh, about a year and a half ago, two years ago-ish, we had plan started planning a trip to Israel for our church. And as a result of COVID, that got shut down and now Israel is open back up. And so it looks like we are gonna go with two other churches and kind of a combined effort in October. And so if there's anybody that's interested in going to Israel, uh, Dan and Sharon, will you guys raise your hands? Dan and Sharon will be over at the, the missions table after service and can get you information on that uh, if you're interested at all. Third thing, uh, dad's in the room. Stand up with me. Yeah, give it up for the dads. Okay. Stay, stay standing. Um, this is going to be the longest standing dad competition. So whoever's still standing by the end of the service, you'll get a prize. No. Uh, I wanted to say something to you dads this morning, coming from a dad myself with tons of experience. Um, I was thinking about what I could say to you guys to encourage you. And I often tell my wife, I feel like my role in guys' lives as a pastor is oftentimes when people are spinning out and they're struggling in life to grab them by the cheeks and say, you got this. <laughs> and this morning as we were worshiping, I just really wanted to grab each of you by the cheeks and in the most loving and encouraging way say, you can do this. Because I know that it's not easy. I know there are days when you feel like you'll never get it right. My kids will never follow Jesus. I don't know how to be the spiritual leader in my home. Like go down the list of the excuses that we continue to make. And the reality is God has called and equipped you for the role that he's placed you in and you can do it. And I want you guys to be encouraged this morning because there are some great kids in this church that love Jesus as a result of your investment. And we love and appreciate you guys. So would you guys just extend a hand towards the nearest dad? You know, if, if it's your dad, you probably wanna go that direction, not another. And we're just gonna pray for the dads this morning. Jesus, I thank you so much for these fathers. I thank you for their sacrifice. I thank you for their investment in their families. I pray against the discouragement that I, I know comes on a daily basis when we feel like we've fallen short or we can't quite meet the expectations. And I pray, Jesus, that you would encourage them, that you'd love on them, that you'd draw near to them, that they would sense that your spirit is with them on this mission, that they aren't and I just pray the joy and the peace of the Lord and the power of his Holy Spirit over each man in this room. God, would today just be a blessing to them as they spend time with their families. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Awesome. 
Nobody's still standing? What the? Oh, you win! Sam, you win. <laughs> All right, open up with me to Matthew chapter 16. Kind of been an interesting text this morning for Father's Day. That's just how it rolls when we're trying to make it through Matthew under four years. So <laughs> this morning we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 12. Specifically, I want to highlight this idea of um, the, this concept of discernment, like discerning what is true and discerning what is false. And as I was thinking about what discernment is this past week, I was reminded of a symphony that Heather and I had, had attended um, years ago. And one of the things that stuck out to me about this, this concert, this orchestra, uh, was, and I know most of you are like, what, you don't like the music? No, I like the music. But one of the most me memorable pieces of the symphony for me was listening to them tune their instruments at the beginning of the, the, the show. And you'd get like, uh, you know, the, the, the pianist would like the key and all their instruments start to tune themselves to that key. And then throughout the tuning process, you'd hear the, the flautist kind of spout in with that key every now and then and hold it so that everybody can continue to tune their instruments to that key. And along the way, what you realize is that you can sometimes be solo and, and, and play your instrument, and it can sound great to you, but once you get it with the rest of the group, it just doesn't sound that good because there needs to be this tuning to the same key. And when it comes to discernment in the church, I think it's a lot like this. Like, I, I have a tuning fork that I had preached a sermon like eight years ago, and I had mentioned a tuning fork, and like two days after that sermon, I came into my office and there was a tuning fork in my mailbox and it's the coolest thing. I keep it on my desk and every now and then I just hit it and I sit and listen to it. And it reminds me of the fact that as followers of Jesus, this is really our role, right? To, to hit the note and then to tune ourselves to his voice, to listen to him. And when it comes to discernment, even corporate discernment as a church, as a body of people, as followers of Jesus, this is our goal, is to hear the note that he's ringing and to begin to align our lives and our hearts with him in this process. And when we do that, the harmony that takes place in Jesus' church is unbelievable, unmatched. So as we dive into this this morning, I want us to consider what it means to be in tune with God and to be discerning what is good and true because the goal for us is to know Jesus to know good doctrine, to know good teaching. So Matthew 16, verse 1, says, And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be, storm it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times, like what's going on right before your eyes. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And so he left them and he departed. And when the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it amongst themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? 
Do you not yet perceive? Do you not yet remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he, that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Man, sometimes you read scripture like this and you just feel good about yourself, don't you? <laughs> so what's going on here? Jesus has just feeding, finished feeding 4,000 men, not counting women and children, so upwards of 12 to 15,000 people. This is the second time in the book of Matthew that Jesus has performed a miracle like this, feeding thousands of people miraculously from a small amount of fish and loaves. And in this passage, the religious leaders of the day, these Pharisees and these Sadducees, show up, and they begin to question Jesus, and they begin to test him, it says. And Jesus responds to them and talks to the disciples about the importance of discernment, perceiving what's actually going on, understanding. And as we talk about this idea of discernment, I want to talk about five different comparisons that I see that that Jesus is making over the false and the true. And I want to talk about what's true first. And if something is true, then Jesus desires for us to prioritize that thing in order to avoid something else. And in this passage, Jesus also talks a few times about this idea of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And leaven in this culture, this first first century Judaism, was a picture of sin. Leaven is this ingredient that's used in bread, and Jesus is warning them that there is sin and false teaching amongst the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And I think that as we get into this passage, I really hope this morning that we can acknowledge that this leaven of the Pharisees, this leaven of the Sadducees, the Sadducees, is still very much alive today. And maybe, just maybe, it might be in our bread a little bit more than we realize. I want you to look at these five comparisons of these contrasts that Jesus makes. The first one I want you to see is this. Jesus focuses on the eternal over the temporal. And so verses one through three, says, and the Pharisees and Sadducees uh, came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the time. So... In this passage, we're we're reintroduced to these Pharisees, these two sects of people, the the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These two groups of religious leaders of Jesus today were polar opposites of one another. These groups were totally opposite. So it's kind of unique that these two groups that are so opposite have now actually come together, they've joined teams to now approach Jesus. And so to give you sort of a modern day example of this, think like, right-wing Tea Party conservative and the the leftist Democrats coming together to do something together. Like, that just doesn't happen in our day and age, right? These two groups, it would not have been expected that they would come together for anything, but they're coming together to test Jesus. And this is uh, what's happening with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The fact that they're coming together is sort of monumental. And the reason they're doing this is because they're both extremely threatened by Jesus. So as they gather together, they're asking Jesus for a sign. And so, and as we consider the context of what's going on at face value, 
this sort of seems to be a little bit ridiculous to us because they're asking Jesus to show them something for a miracle, show us a sign. They want him to prove that he actually is the Messiah. But like we've been reading through the last couple chapters, Jesus has been healing people. Jesus has been casting demons out of people. Jesus has been miraculously feeding thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people from very small amounts of food. And now they're coming to him and saying, show us a sign. (laughs) Like, what in the world more do you want? Show us a sign. They want one more sign. And the idea in this context of what they're really asking for is they want a sign that's sort of not on the earth, but they want a sign from heaven. Like it was actually a common belief at this time that you couldn't trust somebody who was just performing earthly miracles like healings because they would have been a little bit skeptical of this, that maybe it was counterfeit, maybe it was all man-made. And so they wanted Jesus to do something from the heavens, like call down fire on a group of people or anything that could sort of prove to them that he was the Messiah. And so now I think it's important for us as we consider this to sort of get to know the world of the Pharisees and the Sadducees a little bit better and to understand what their expectation of this Messiah was. Because here's Jesus who's claiming to be the Messiah. And these Pharisees and Sadducees want nothing to do with him. They don't want him to be their Messiah. They don't want him to be it. And why is that? Because as you read the Old Testament, you see that there's tons of prophecies speaking about this Messiah that was to come. And theologians typically sort of categorize these prophecies into two separate groups. You've got one group of prophecies that relate to this Messiah as this suffering servant. And then you've got this other group of prophecies relating to the Messiah as this ruling, reigning, victorious king. And it sort of sounds like two different people, doesn't it? One that wants this, or was looking for the suffering servant, one that was looking for this reigning king, this victorious king, this ruler. And so we understand that in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, these two categories of prophecies are speaking of the first coming of Christ as the suffering servant, and then we've got the second coming of Jesus as this ruling and victorious king. And so when Jesus first came, he was this humble and this meek servant. There are even comments uh, in Jesus' life where he speaks to the fact that he didn't have a place to lay his head. He was homeless. And then Jesus suffers this brutal death on the cross in our place for our sin. He was this suffering servant. But then we also know that Jesus is going to come back again. And that scriptures teach us that when Jesus returns, he's not coming as a suffering servant, but he's coming as a victorious ruler and a reigning king. Amen? He's coming back to take what's his. Now, if you're a Jew in first century Israel, you have to remember that you're being oppressed by the Romans. They're coming down on you on every side. You're essentially a second-class citizen. And so which category of prophecies would you be more excited about as a Jew at this time? Which one do you want? You want the suffering servant? No. You want the one that's going to come like kick butt and take names, right? This dude that's going to set things straight for you once and for all, like it's going to happen. So when Jesus appears on the scene and he makes statements about not having anywhere to lay his head, 
And the fact that he's not really interested in a political message, but he has this message of love, he has this message of spiritual transformation in the heart, like they do not like him. They want this ruling, reigning, victorious king. And so they come onto the scene and they start testing Jesus. And they're trying to push him out. They're trying to get rid of Jesus. So Jesus gives them a rebuke at this point. And he uses weather as an example. And he says, you guys are really perceptive and you're able to perceive the, the, the skies and predict the weather. And in fact, you do so by looking at the sky. You can tell the weather by the colors in the sky. And if it's red at night, you'll say that it's gonna be a nice day tomorrow. If it's red in the morning, you'll say that it's gonna be a stormy day, yet you don't even realize what's happening. You can't even see the signs of the times. In other words, Jesus is saying to, to this group of religious leaders, you guys know the scriptures very well, and you should actually be able to recognize that I am the Messiah and that I'm here for you. And essentially, that they had become so focused on the temporal things that they actually weren't seeing the eternal things. They had chosen what they wanted to believe based on their own preconceived notions of who they wanted the Messiah to be, the kind of Messiah they wanted. And the reality is that you and I do this very same thing, and we do it often. We want to make God into our own image instead of accepting God for who he says he is in his scriptures. And this is something that comes up as you look into the subject of biblical interpretation, right? That there's these two words that you'll often read about when it comes to learning how to interpret the Bible. Exegesis, and you've got another word, eisegesis. Exegesis is what you want to do when you're studying the scriptures, right? You want to essentially look at the text and pull out from the text what God is actually saying in the text. Eisegesis is what we want to steer clear from. Eisegesis is when you read into the text and you already know what it is you want to see. You're trying to get out of it what you want out of it. Anybody ever do the thing before where you like take your Bible and you go, oh, Jesus, speak to me. And then you read it, and you're like, no, not that one. Oh, Lord, speak to me. Oh, no, not that one. And you just keep turning until you get what it is that you want. This is eisegesis. Like, you're reading it to get what you want out of it, not trying to understand the heart of God or what he desires or what he's going to do. So these religious sects of people, this is what they've done. They've created God in their own image, the Messiah in their own image. They know what they want. They know what their expectations are. And Jesus most definitely does not meet their expectations. They wanted God to sort of line up with their program rather than seeing God for who he is. And Jesus is commenting on the fact that they're so perceptive when it comes to the weather, but they're not seeing the fact that the Messiah is right there. We are often so guilty of focusing on the temporal, we get distracted by the temporal, and we fail to see that which is eternal. The second thing that I want you to see is in verse 4. Jesus focusing on motives over actions. Says this, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and then departed. So Jesus' response to this demand for a sign from heaven is this. He calls them an evil and adulterous generation because they've come to him and they've asked for the sign. 
And so Jesus is speaking to their motives, and he makes this comment that there's a sign that he will give them, and it's the sign of Jonah. And when Jesus says this, what Jesus is speaking of is the resurrection, that just as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, and he came out, this Messiah would be inside of the earth for three days and three nights, and he would rise again. And it is the resurrection that Jesus is pointing to here, and it's the resurrection that is the ultimate proof of the fact that he is the Messiah. And so as you study the resurrection and you sort of simply look at it from even a historical perspective, right? People can't disprove the resurrection. Nobody has ever found the body of Jesus, right? Like it's one of the proofs that we have. Like you can't find it. So it's really hard to prove. In verse 1, it says that they'd come to Jesus because they were testing him. So Jesus is looking at their motives. He's getting into the heart. It says that he's testing him. This, this word test in the Greek is this idea of testing someone so that they'll not fail. It's, it's sort of, it's not the idea of asking questions and just being curious and wanting to know the truth. It's literally testing in order to prove that somebody's wrong. That's what they're trying to do. And what you realize is they didn't actually want a sign. Jesus knows their heart. They're literally trying to trick Jesus and back him into a corner so that they can move on with the narrative that is most comfortable to them, that makes most sense in their life. And so they're testing Jesus so that he will fail. And Jesus is going deeper than their actions. He's looking at their motives. He's looking at the heart. And when you look at their actions, it's actually a really noble thing on the outside before you start to dig a little bit deeper. Because here's this group of spiritual leaders from these two separate classes, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And there's this man who's claiming to be the Messiah, and they're testing him, and they're asking him questions, and they're asking him to prove that he's the Messiah. It actually seems like the proper thing to do. It's no light thing that Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah. And so at face value, their questioning of him sort of makes sense. And so as spiritual leaders, it seems right for them to do, right? If somebody came today claiming to be the Messiah, I'd probably go and be like, um, prove it. <laughs> do something. Like, how do we know that you're it? But when you dig deeper and you see their motives, it, it actually seems that they're just testing him so that Jesus would fail, which is not a noble task on their behalf. And we sort of have this tendency to focus on our actions and we often overlook our motives. In fact, we tend to actually judge other people based on what we think their motives are, don't we? We judge them based on what we think their motives are. We judge ourselves based on our actions. We judge other people based on what we think their motives are, and we judge ourselves based on our own actions. But following Jesus, it means that we go much deeper than our actions, and we actually look to the motives. And so Jesus talks to the Pharisees a ton about this. He gives one analogy where he says that they're sort of like a cup that's really clean on the outside, but when you look at the inside of it, it's actually really dirty. Anybody know anybody that has literally kept the same coffee cup for like 20 years and they've never washed it? I've met people like that. They're like, I've had the same thing for 30 years. I've never once even washed the insides. Like, that's nasty. There's bacteria growing in that. Jesus is literally calling, he calls them a whitewashed tomb. 
He pushes back against the fact that they look so good on the outside, but the inside is actually rotten. It's dead. And Jesus said this because they would focus on their actions, but they wouldn't look at their heart. They would not examine their motives. And so as we think about this in our own life, this comes up all the time. Sometimes we share with others about an issue that somebody else is struggling with, and we're doing it because we just want somebody to pray for them, right? And what do you realize? No, it's actually gossip. Like, what's the real motive in sharing somebody else's struggle with somebody else so they can get prayer? Like, we can sometimes look at our own motives and go, is that wholesome? Is it good? Are, are we honestly desiring what's best and God's best for that person? And as you look deeper into our motives, oftentimes, again, we're just gossiping. We're getting excited about sharing juicy news. And for some, we may serve God, but really what we're just, we're just doing it so that we can be seen. And, and that's when you start to dig a little deeper and you look at your motives, right? We come to church, a gathering like this on a Sunday, and we worship. And then you look deeper into our motives of why we're here and what we're doing. And sometimes it's not out of deep joy and worship for Jesus that we find ourselves here this morning. It's good for us to examine our motives and ask God to search our hearts. Ask God to reveal our motives to us. And here's the mistake that, that we so often make is that we can realize that we have wrong motives. And so in order to sort of avoid good action with bad motive, we throw the baby out with the bathwater, don't we? And so we, we say things like, um, the answer, you know, for us, I'm just not going to serve at all because I know that my, my attitude's bad or my heart's bad, and so I'm not going to do anything. And so we sort of become a recluse, and we back out because our motives are just always bad. And I want to encourage you this morning that I'm not here to, like, try to figure out who's right and who's wrong. But what I'm saying is do we humbly approach Jesus and allow him to examine our hearts to point out where our motives are at. Because I don't know about you, I can do a pretty good job of making the cup look really clean on the outside. I can pull the wool over tons of people's eyes. But what's really going on in the heart? And it's interesting going into this interaction with Jesus and the Pharisees and the Sadducees because what does Jesus know prior to this whole interaction? Where are their hearts actually at? You're not looking for a sign because you really want to be convinced that I'm the Messiah. Your heart's off. Your motives are off. And I know if you're anything like me, that there's often a tendency, I'm guilty at times of doing the right thing with the wrong heart. And it's so good sometimes to sit down with Jesus and say, by your grace, I know that you knew my motives were off. But help me to align my motives with your heart, Jesus. I love Psalm 139. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. What an awesome prayer. So we present ourselves to God and we ask him to search our hearts, to reveal our wicked motives and the cool thing about Jesus is that he doesn't stop there and just reveal what's wrong with you. That's not his goal. It's not just like, oh, let's 
find out all the nasty, wicked stuff that exists in you. But he leads us into the paths everlasting, doesn't he? He, he leads me in the right way. He corrects my heart. Number three, verse five, is that Jesus is comparing faith over doubt. So verse five, it says, when the disciples reached the other side, they'd forgotten to bring any bread. This part just cracks me up. Jesus says, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they begin discussing it amongst themselves, saying, we didn't bring any bread. And Jesus, aware of this, so this is where he knows our hearts, right? Jesus, aware of this, says, oh, you little faith. Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or discern or understand? Do you not, re not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? And so Matthew points out that they have no bread with them. They've got none. They, they forgot to bring any food for their journey. And Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So once again, that this, this idea of leaven is this ingredient that's used in bread, and it's oftentimes in Scripture a picture of sin. And this is why the Jews use unleavened bread during the feasts, such as Passover, because leaven was represented of sin. And so it's a symbol of sin saying, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, the sin, the teaching, the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And immediately their minds go to physical bread. They start, they hear the word leaven and they start thinking, bread? You know, like, we, we don't have any. They're like, oh man, like he's talking about leaven. We totally forgot bread and they're getting worried. And Jesus says, why are you worrying about bread right now? And I'd be like, because you said leaven, right? <laughs> like, what else are you talking about? And he brings up these two miracles that they just performed. And here's the irony is that these 12 guys just saw Jesus miraculously, miraculously feed thousands of people from a couple loaves of bread and a few fish. And now they're worried about bread. Jesus had no problem feeding 35 to 40,000 people miraculously prior to this, and these 12 guys are worried about what they're going to eat for lunch. Jesus is like, don't you guys get it? And like I said before, it's passages like this that really encourage me, because I know that I'm not the only one that it takes multiple times to learn a lesson, right? Right? God has provided so miraculously in Heather and I's lives over and over again. And it seems like when those same circumstances repeat themselves in our lives, you're like, oh, I don't know what we're going to do. It's like, he did it before. Why are we so worried about it again? We point the fingers at these guys like, how can they be so dumb? And we're like, tomorrow, you know, <laughs> we're in the same position of going like, God, can I trust you? Like, where are you at, Lord? Will you do the same thing that you did before again? Like, how do I know? And every time the Lord's sort of like, didn't you see how I came through? Didn't you see it? You guys just lived it. What's the area in your life that you're tempted to doubt God in? What is the area? And the reality is that we so often will dwell on those doubts instead of realizing, believing, and trusting that God sees us and that God will come through for us. And we go and we hold on to the promises of what he's actually given to us. And this, you guys, is a marker of a follower of Jesus, faith in all things. 
This is by his spirit that we're given faith, the strength to trust him. The fourth thing that Jesus compares is this, verse 11, the spiritual over the physical. And so Jesus prioritizes the spiritual over the physical. He says this in verse 11, how is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? He reiterates, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so as he gives this analogy, that their first reaction is to think about the physical world around them, right? And Jesus is speaking a spiritual truth. And, and you know, I, I think about how so often you and I are tempted to focus on the physical things, to live in the physical rather than seeing the spiritual realities of what God is doing. And it's so easy for us to focus on material things while neglecting the spiritual things in our life. Like I meet with people on a regular basis whose marriages are falling apart and you're like, where's the issue? And they're like, uh, you know, I don't know. Like we have a good marriage, we go on dates, we do things, blah, 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 blah. You know, when was the last time you prayed together? which I'm guilty of. When was the last time you talked about spiritual things? Like we have this tendency to just immediately latch on to the physical things and assume that those things have the power to work miracles in your life. And it's not that that works the miracle, it's the spiritual realm. It's his spirit that does the work in us, through us, around us. Paul says in Romans 8, 5 and 6, For those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those, listen, who live according to the Spirit, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is what? Life and peace. So what Paul shows us here is that if if we want to know whether we're carnally minded or spiritually minded, just look at your thought life. Like, what are the things that we focus on? What are the things that we obsess about? What are the things that consume our, our thoughts? And he says that if we're a carnal person, we'll be carnally minded. And then he goes on from there to say that if we're earthly minded or carnally minded, that this leads to death, but to be spiritually minded leads to life and peace. Who wants life and peace? Anybody? Like, I'm sick of the carnally minded. Like, that's all around us. I want the life and the peace. And basically, it all starts with what we're putting in our minds. Are we focused on the physical, on the carnal, on the earthly, or do we focus on the spiritual things? And the last thing, the, the number five, verse 12, is freedom over chains. And I want you to hear this one. He says this, Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of leaven, the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees wasn't about bread. So finally, they realize that Jesus is not referring to physical bread, but he's speaking of the leaven or the sin, the doctrine, the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so I sort of want to end like this, as we're considering these two groups of people, again, it's pretty interesting that the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they come together And Jesus is is telling them to beware of these groups' false doctrines because they're essentially at two different ends, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they're at the opposite ends. Um, Often in our life, it's at the opposite ends that we find ourselves, isn't it? 
on one side or the other. And the Pharisees were these individuals that were committed to purity. I mean, I say this all the time. They get a bad rap. I am a modern-day Pharisee. But they, they, were, they were people that were committed to purity, that they wanted to obey God's word. They wanted to know God's word. They wanted to separate themselves from the sinful culture. Like, they sound evangelical, don't they? And there's all these great traits about them, yet they miss the heart of God in this. And Jesus so often is coming down against them in this place of legalism because they focus on their actions, yet they don't see the heart in it. They focus on their works more than they realize God's grace and God's acceptance. And legalism is when we start to think that we can actually earn God's love by doing things for him. And it's when we start to add things to God's word so that we feel more spiritual about ourselves and like we've accomplished more and we've sort of built up this portfolio for ourselves. So we add things and we separate ourselves from God as we do this. And this is the leaven of the Pharisees. We make it all about us, the things we do and have accomplished to set ourselves apart. And what we see in the gospel is that it's Jesus that accepts us and it's Jesus that forgives us, amen? It's not based on our works. It's nothing that we could make up for and do to try to earn. Now, at the opposite end of this, you have the Sadducees. And these Sadducees, they're focused on the Pentateuch. They're focused on the first five books of the Old Testament. Like, they, they know the word, they love the word but they believe heavily on the material side of things. The Sadducees, they're, they're wealthy, very rich, building kingdoms for themselves, for themselves on this earth. And then the Sadducees, unlike the Pharisees, they actually begin to deny all the spiritual realities that scriptures talk about, such as heaven and angels. They didn't believe in the same spiritual principles. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And so there's major theological things that separated the Pharisees from the Sadducees. So there's this small party of people. They're incredibly rich. They're very materialistic, which was probably why they conveniently didn't want to believe in the spiritual because they're actually obsessed with what it is they had. And if we're not a legalist, then oftentimes we can be someone who feels that we have the license to sin or to just do what we want or to just live in the moment like YOLO, right? You only live once, and so you take your life into your own hands. And maybe our mantra isn't that we're trying to impress God, but that we just want to live in the moment. Maybe that's the banner we're waving. This is the leaven of the Sadducees that they saw pleasure as doing whatever they want and pursuing even material wealth. And Jesus holds up both of these sides, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he says, you won't be made whole with either of these two philosophies. Neither of them. Both of these philosophies end up being chains on your life. 
And if you want freedom, then we come to Jesus because Jesus provides for us something deeper. Jesus provides us with true and lasting pleasure that doesn't come from just pursuing life however we want it. Jesus brings us true righteousness and we move beyond our actions and we see our hearts and we receive Jesus's righteousness. And Jesus shows us that we're accepted by the Lord because he's our adopted father who loves us the same when we're rebelling against him or when we're walking with him, but that God doesn't want to leave us in that place. He wants us to take, he wants to take us down the paths of righteousness and life everlasting, doesn't he? So this morning, plain and simply, I'm gonna ask the worship team to come up. Do you find yourself in life on one of these sides this morning? And would Jesus step in this morning and say, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? They look great. Man, they've got things dialed. The house is mowed, like it's neat. Everything looks fantastic. They attend church every Sunday. They're in community group midweek. Everything looks amazing. And yet their hearts are far from him. Do you find yourself in a place this morning tired of continuing to try to clean the cup? Because honestly, that sounds exhausting. Creating a life for yourself that functions around what you can do and what you can attain so that everybody thinks that you've made it and you've figured it out. This morning, church, can we take a deep breath in Jesus and recognize the fact that Nothing I do, my actions do not draw me closer to him. Like, I need his spirit because I'm good at cleaning up the actions while the motives sort of go unnoticed and unchallenged. And I don't know where you're at this morning, but I tend to say there's a lot of us in this room that find ourselves on one side or the other. You've made yourself so spiritual and you cleaned it up so well only you know the state of your heart or you've acquired for yourself so many things and you've stacked up this kingdom on this earth and you've made things so material that they're not spiritual and in the same way you've made it all about you and Jesus is calling you to center this morning to lay it all down for him like that's the gospel he did what you could not do for yourself amen and he's calling us down this path of righteousness to life everlasting his grace and his peace and his forgiveness and I don't know about you man there are days and weeks when I desperately need the reminder of that would you stand with me pray with me Jesus I thank you for your church I thank you for the fact that um, Lord even despite our meager attempts to try to do things on our own and earn something you are above all and Jesus, this morning, you see the state of our hearts. You know where we're at. And I just pray, God, for us that we can have the strength to be honest enough to lay our hearts bare before you and say, Jesus, have your way. Challenge my motives, Lord. I want them to be aligned with your will, not my own. Jesus, give me the strength to find my righteousness, my forgiveness, and my salvation in you, not in what I can do on my own. Jesus, protect us from the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. 
bless, empower. May your spirit go with your church. May your joy and your peace and your life everlasting not only be in us, but be oozing out of us, God. And as we leave this place this morning, may our city actually be impacted, our families impacted, our friendships impacted, because we aren't a people that just have cleaned up on the outside. If anything, we sort of bear our hearts to the world and they know how jacked up we are, but yet on the inside, we've been made whole and we're clean and we're pure by the grace, by the blood of Jesus and his body broken for us on that cross. And we rejoice in that this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.